Welcome to Where Others Won't, episode 75. If you're just finding the show, I hope you'll check out some of the previous episodes, which include guests like Canadian men's national team head coach John Herdman, Swedish curling legend Paya Lindholm, and former Colorado Avalanche head coach Tony Granado. My awesome guest on this episode is Vegas Golden Knights head coach Peter DeBoer. After 15 years coaching junior hockey, including a Memorial Cup win with the Kitchener Rangers, Peter has become one of the NHL's most sought-after coaches. Prior to joining Vegas, he's coached the Florida Panthers, New Jersey Devils, and San Jose Sharks, leading both the Devils and the Sharks to the Stanley Cup final. I hope you enjoy my conversation with NHL coach Peter DeBoer. From sunny and hot Toronto to sunny and hot Vegas, Peter DeBoer, how are you, mate? Fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Let's get the most important thing out, and this will be most relevant to Canadians and Australians who care about nicknames. What was your nickname growing up? <laughs> Great question. Uh, you know, in, in hockey, they, they always, uh, you know, add an O or a Y to your last name. So, you know, it was Debo or, or, uh, or Debbie. Um, I, I did have a, a nickname. I, I played uh, in a small town in, in Ontario and I played junior C. There was a junior C team in town and, and junior C at that time was uh, 17 to 20 year olds, but mostly 19, 20 year olds. And I happened to make that team as a 15 year old and I was really underdeveloped. Uh, um, you know, I was about 150 pounds playing against 185, 90 pound guys. So they called me bullet. Uh, because my shot was so poor, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have any strength. And so it was a, that's the hockey uh, uh, world where, uh, you know, if, if you have a poor shot, they'll, they'll call you a bullet. If you have a, a you know, uh, if you're a big heavy guy, they call you slim. <laughs> just, that's just how it goes. So those, those were some of the, the names I dealt with. Yeah, most people think about the similarities between Australia and Canada and, you know, language and Toronto's on a grid just like Melbourne is and trams, streetcars and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things that rings true is the nicknames and it's, yeah, Jono or Smithy yeah. or to your point, yeah, like Slim or something yeah. if, uh, if you're small. But uh, that's one of the reasons I was able to just slot right in here. Well, just, just, it's just funny that the nickname Aaron, and it's been like that for, for 30, 40 years in hockey. I mean, it doesn't change. There's, there, you know, no, nobody, uh, uh, there's just not a lot of creativity to it, but uh, it, it's, it's funny anyway. And uh, you know, it, it's really part of our culture. It's amazing how it's part of every dressing room. It's, it's an immediate acceptance for everybody that walks in when you, when you get a nickname, when you get an O or a Y added to your name. <laughs> yeah. That close knit family is one of the things that I want to talk to you about in hockey, because it, it's something that really appeals to me as an outsider. And 
and and you're right, it is really, really close in the game and to the point where most people kind of know each other. But um, let me start here with you. I, I just wrote a book earlier in the year called The Tough Stuff. It was about head coaching, you know, at the elite levels. When I say the phrase, the tough stuff to you about coaching, where does your mind go without me prompting you? <clears throat> well, it, it, it goes to the essence of our job. Um, and, and that is to push elite athletes outside their comfort zone uh, mm -hmm. to, to places that aren't easy to go to. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that's really what it comes down to, because at the end, when you get to the highest levels, everybody's talented. It's, it's, it's who's willing to go there and, 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 you know, what coaches can, can push those athletes there, um, and, and get them to go there willingly now, because, you know, there can't be a resentment involved in going there or, or, or it's not going to last. And then if I were to flip that around to you. How have you, through your journey, and we can kind of touch on that a little bit, but as you've come through and had to refine your own skills and how you push and how you coach, and, and obviously as you've lived through, the job has kind of become oversized now where there are so many things to do. You know, things that we used to do as head coaches are now departments with PhDs in them. Yeah. How have you thought about optimizing yourself so even through that growth, you can still coach at your best and, and push young yeah. athletes to, to them? Well, it, it, it's a great question. And I think, I think it depends a little bit on the level you're coaching. Uh, I coached junior hockey for 15 years. Uh, prior to, to coaching in the NHL and, and, and pros and men. Uh, and, and junior was a little bit more of a dictatorship. Uh, you had young players uh, and you were responsible for them 24 hours a day. Their, their schooling, their housing, their girlfriend problems, everything. And then, and then you, you know, so it, it's impossible uh, not to, uh, coach a little bit differently at that level when you have that responsibility because you don't have the time uh, yeah. not to. So, so it becomes a little more of a dictatorship. Uh, when you turn pro, you have to turn that off because, uh, you know, and, and, and relationship build uh, because you're really only with them for a couple hours a day. They go home. You're not worried about what they're doing once they leave the rink and, and, and you know, you have a small window there and from a coaching perspective, much more time and, and much you can put much more value on on relationship building um, and, and trust building with with pro athletes. So, uh, you know, I, I think I had to change that as I turned to pro and, and learn that um, and learn what these guys respond to and what they don't respond to. And 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 that's changed you know, just with the modern athlete now in the last 10 years, e even at the junior level, I think, you know, there's, it, it's less of a dictatorship than it was. Um, and, at, and at the NHL level, for sure, uh, the coaching's totally different. And so how do you kind of take care of yourself? So, you know, you, you're emotional and, and physical, like do you, do you block out time to exercise? Do you meditate? What, what has kind of helped you stay at your best? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I, I, I took my first NHL coaching job at 40. Uh, I, I, like I said, I had coached junior hockey for 15 years before that. 
and, and at the junior level, uh, again, you're, you're responsible for them 24 hours a day. You're, you're booking buses of hotels. I mean, you, you did everything, but, but drive the bus for the team. And then you, then you <laughs> yeah. come to the NHL and, and you're the head coach and you're right. You, you have a, you know, you're delegating almost every detail of what you're doing to staff and people around you. And, uh, I, 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 after I, I retired from playing to the time I turned 40, I didn't do a lot of exercising. The, the first day I, I showed up in the NHL, uh, I had a great assistant coach named Mike Kitchen, who was a, a lifetime NHL coach, 40 years in the game. And he suggested uh, just for stress relief alone to, to start exercising. And, and I did that and I incorporated that and and that's been critical for me. Uh, I can't believe how many ideas I come come up with, you know, uh, running on a treadmill or or uh, getting on the elliptical in the morning, how it clears your mind, how it relieves your stress, how you feel better about yourself. So for young coaches out there, I, I would I would tell you uh, that it's a it's a stressful job. And that was probably the, the biggest and most important piece of advice I got. It's funny how you can kind of burn yourself out of that exercise as well. Like I, I finished up playing at 25 and Aussie rules is a, a very demanding physical sport, but I'd been lifting weights since I was 15. So I'd done it three or four times a week for 10 years, basically. And yeah, like that had burnt me out. So I, yeah. you know, even starting to get back into exercise routines, I could run but I hated lifting weights. I only just started lifting again about a month ago. Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting, I'm 38 now. So yeah, it's funny how those things can kind of, you just don't think about them after you've done your career, yeah. but they can be so, so helpful. Well, and, and, and it's a, it's a great point. And I think, I think uh, trainers do a much better job now, but, you know, it, it, no one liked to work out. I mean, they didn't make it fun, uh, you know, right. in back 10 years ago. You know, now right. now these guys with the data and uh, and the different disciplines and, and the way that they structure the workouts and, and how they, they're getting daily feedback on their improvements. You know, I, I think this today's athlete is going to be much more inclined to continue to work out the rest of their life just because it, it's not a, a painful exercise. You're not going in a, in a garage with a bunch of weights and, and dirt and, and, and slugging it out for an hour and a half, you know, with no, with little or no feedback. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be easier for this generation. I was just reading an article about Brentford in the English Premier League and, you know, a small club in London and they've made their way in into the top league. And one of the things was 10 years ago, they had the gym in the kitchen. Yeah. at their stadium so he's like describing what it's like to smell spaghetti cooking while you're, you're doing your pull-ups yeah uh, but i think yeah but i think we forget that you know again that's just the narrative of how quickly sport has has moved and probably how recent it was that it wasn't truly fully professionalized Absolutely. And, and, and from the outside looking in, pe people wouldn't realize how unprofessionalized it was. I mean, it was shocking to me when I walked into the NHL at 40, 12, 13 years ago. Um, you know, it, it's your dream to get to that level your whole life. And, and you feel 
like when you get there, you walk in the doors and everything is done right all the time. And, and you know, that, that wasn't the case, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of situations, uh, they were run, you know, organizations were run uh, more poorly than some of the, the junior organizations I had been around. So, um, you know, that, there, there's definitely that aura to the level that, uh, you know, in the past maybe hasn't matched up, but I think, I think now, you know, the margins are so slim and, and it's so hard to win that, that everybody is, uh, has, has ramped that area up in their organizations. Yeah. One of my favorite stories in my book and just in general, and I, I use it in a lot of talks around this topic is from Tony Granado telling me, you know, when he takes over in Colorado in 2003, just, you know, arguments to be had that potentially the greatest team to ever hit the ice, you know, Sakic, Forsberg, Wah, all those guys. And it's him and Jacques Cloutier was the only people on staff. So he's in 2003. Right? So it's not even 20 years ago. You've got no. essentially two coaches for one of the greatest teams to ever been iced in the national hockey league. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, and now, and now I think uh, our sport is moving more towards football. Um, yeah. I, and I think training has, has pushed us that way. There's so much one-on-one -on -one now, individual skills. They've broken hockey down into to skills and, and edge work and skating and, and the mental piece and all these young elite athletes now come up with coaches in all those areas so when you get to a pro team you know you have to satisfy that need or or they're going to feel like uh, like they're not prepared and and i think we're moving to much bigger staffs and, and much more individualized areas one of the things that fascinates me the most about looking at your background is just how long you've been a head coach Obviously, a lot of people kind of come through the pathway, you know, assistant coach up to head coach, and then maybe also then jump into a higher level as an assistant coach and kind of work up through there. But you've essentially come through the whole time in the head coaching role. Do you think that's benefited you as you've gone along that you just you have a grasp on the role itself, even if it is at a different level? <clears throat> Great question. Um, uh, I had a... Uh one of my best friends, Paul Maurice, coach of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, he, he was the youngest head coach in the NHL at 27 and has pretty much been in the NHL since then. Uh, you know, he's in the, he's now in the top five, I think for games coached in the NHL. Um, and has never worked as an assistant, been a, been a head guy the entire time. And him and I, uh, you know, ha had a beer, over the summer, a couple summers ago, and we were talking about that, and he felt he, he really uh, uh, missed uh, and, and wasn't as good a coach because he never had the experience to go and work under other people, take different ideas, look at different things. He got in so young and stayed for so long in that role that he never got that. And, you know, my, my the difference in my path was um, – I got involved with Hockey Canada, and while I was a head coach at the junior level, even at the NHL level, uh, in the off season, uh, I would get an opportunity to go. I went four times to the World Championships as an assistant coach with Team Canada, so that that filled that hole for me. Uh, I got to work under uh, Dave Tippett and Ken Hitchcock and 
you know, uh, Todd McClellan, all, all kinds of different coaches. So I, I got that experience um, and I, and I loved it. I'll, I'll tell you, there's, you know, there's not many head coaches that don't wish on a lot of days, boy, I'd love to be the assistant coach and, and, you know, uh, have a great relationship with the players and never have a lot of tough conversations and never have to make the final decision. And, you know, it, 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 it's actually a fantastic job. I enjoyed every minute of it because it, it's totally different than the head coach relationship. Uh, you know, you mm -hmm. can really, you can really get close to those players uh, in a, in a different social way. Um, so I, I enjoyed being an assistant coach. I would recommend any head coaches, you know, whenever they get an opportunity to, you know, whether it's to step away and go and, and work with a national team, you know, it, it was almost a, and, and someone asked me that, you know, don't you take it as a slap in the face going as an assistant, you know, you've been ahead your whole life. And, and I don't, I, I, I take it as a, as a great opportunity to learn and, and make myself better. And, and really I enjoy that role so much because it's so different than what I do every day. So true. And I hear that time and time again, where particularly at the top levels where there's, you know, media commitments and sponsored dinners and all those kind of things where it gets forgotten how far away you are from actually coaching yeah. at its essence, you know, and that kind of assistant role keeps you in that, that real core coaching. Like you said, the one-on-one -on -one stuff that in the locker room, sitting beside the guy with the video player and, you know, kind of going through and that's like really at the, the crux of what we do. And yeah. the additional duties can take you so far from those, those moments. Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think, like I said, I think like football staffs, the game is heading that way. I think head coaches in hockey are going to become more like football with defensive and offensive coordinators and, 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 and uh, position coaches and, and you're just administrators more than more than coaching and uh, you know we have to fight that we have to fight to, to keep our, our 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 feet and our boots on the ground so to speak and in the dressing room and 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 around that stuff because that that is that is the the part that uh, that we love i want to revisit what we talked about earlier in terms of the close-knit community and hockey is a, a well-known close-knit community and you mentioned you know Paul Maurice there yeah where else do you go for your own mentorship and, and coaching and to learn other ideas maybe even outside of of hockey yeah great question I think you can learn from anybody and anywhere like I said my hockey Canada experiences world juniors world championships have been really beneficial for that um I try and get back and speak at coaching clinics in the summer when I have time. I, I did Roger Nielsen's coaching clinic in Windsor, Ontario for years as a, as a presenter. But, but when I would go and present, I'd also stick around and listen to other presentations. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think professional development like that is key to get the, every game uh, changes on a yearly basis. There, there's tactics that change there's different ideas that change and you have to keep up to speed. So those would be some things I, 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 I've become more open to looking at other sports. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I just reached out to John Gruden, who's the uh, Vegas Raiders coach about uh, being able to sit in a, a training camp and, and watch them at work. Unfortunately with COVID, it didn't work out this year, but 
that's on my my list to do is to see how how a football team like that operates because uh, I'm I'm very interested in uh, in seeing that. So uh, I think I think whatever your professional development is, I, I think you have to remind yourself every off season, you know, to to make yourself better and and keep an open mind to to how you're going to do that. It doesn't have to be just in your sport. Sounds weird to say this. One of the great things about COVID, I think, is potentially we realise that and how connected we can be if we want to be. So obviously nothing will replicate you being able to sit in the stands or be on the field with the Raiders and see it and hear it and and feel it. But, yeah, you know, my little coaching group, we've had tactical exchanges. We had about eight different invasion sports all on and we did defensive principles and we all you know we had everything from nba nhl college football aussie rules rugby soccer and there's there's just little things and even though we are obviously still very far away there's there's a lot that we can do like that's just the tactical stuff let alone yeah you know proper mentorship and and the things that we're able to do now with zoom and yeah a lot of options which is great yeah, and, and you know what? I've had the opportunity to watch the Olympics here closely, and it's amazing to me how many principal foundations are the same in every sport. Uh, I was watching the women's soccer. Canada won gold, you know, huge, uh, huge win. But one of the commentators had mentioned how uh, Sinclair, had, you know, had had attacked the middle of the box to create a, a penalty. You know, and, and and those are the same concepts we use in hockey continuously, regardless of all the X and O's and everything. You have to be able to get inside the box and, and have the bravery and, and the commitment to attack those areas in order to create scoring chances or draw penalties. And, that, and that's the same in every sport, water polo, football, soccer, um, you know. And, and so when you, you dumb these sports down and take away – all the, the tactics and everything else, a, a lot of times it comes down to some simple things and concentrating on some simple things. You might not know this, but hockey has had one of the biggest influences on Aussie rules football, my sport. Um, the, the line changes were looked at and essentially now what you see, even though it's very different having 18 players on the field, but you'll often see four players running off the field at the same time to interchange an idea that obviously came from hockey a long time ago. We used to do one by one. You'd bring one player off when he was gassed and you'd put one yeah. on. And now they just yeah. look at this, look at the scoreboard, look at the time and they know the time they need to run off and they just head for the That's boundary fantastic. line. And, and how long would those shifts be for a player? How, how long would he be out there before he would change? It'll differ. A, yeah. a midfielder, a midfielder might come off once a quarter. So maybe yeah. every, uh, 10 or 12 minutes, 14 right. minutes like yeah. that. But yeah, same, same concept. So, and, and uh, you know, it, 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 but great, great point. And uh, you know, at our level, the shift length, uh, it's funny, but if you watch an old NHL game, even, even 15 years ago, you know, the average shift length was a minute plus. And, uh, and now you're down to 37 seconds, 38 seconds, a lot of nights. Uh, so the, uh, the, the intensity and the pace uh, uh, of the game has, has picked up that much more. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that, that coaches now really concentrate on at our level. How do you 
think about or describe your coaching philosophy? Like I describe mine as contextual and I mean, I want to deal with context, whether it's, you know, one-on-one interactions with players or the culture or, or even the game plan. Like I, I feel it's important to really assess what's going on rather than saying like, this is the rule and we're going to stick to that rule. It strikes me that the more I ask coaches haven't written it down but have you taken time maybe through COVID or anything to kind of pause and say, like, what, yeah, what is my philosophy? You know, as you're staring off into the blue Vegas sky, you're like, <laughs> you solidify some ideas around your coaching? Well, first off, I, 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 hate, I hate putting people and coaches in boxes. You're a player's coach. You're not a player's coach. I, I, I can't stand that because yeah. I think, Agreed. I, I think on, on any given day, uh, you're one or the other or both depending on who you're dealing with. You know, if, yeah. if you have a, if you have a, a player that needs a hug and a pat on the back and a conversation and, and a pick me up, you're, you're a player's coach to that player that day. If you've got another guy that that's ego and, and has kind of run wild and needs to take a step back, you know, you might have to have a tough conversation with that player that, that day. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I hate those boxes. I think I think the good coaches have to do everything and be all to everybody, depending on the situation and, and what's going on that day with them. And, th- and that's not easy to do. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, for me, the successful teams that I've had, the teams that have gone on runs, uh, I would tell you, uh, have played uh, with an identity that I feel is my philosophy, and that's everybody's important. Uh, you know, we're going to roll four lines. No one's bigger than the team. Uh, there's a selfless commitment to team uh, over individual stats. And uh, and it's fun coming to the rink. You know, we're going to enjoy practicing, even though we're going to work hard. We're going to enjoy the games, even though we're going to work hard and you're going to have to do tough things. So I think that's the environment that I try and create. I think uh, you know, it's not easy. Not every team goes to that place uh, every year. Uh, you know, so, some teams don't, and that's usually when you don't have success. Uh, and, and part of that is coaching fault. And part of that is maybe personnel that just won't, won't go there. Um, but uh, I think that, that that's what you try and create every year. Talking of not being in boxes, if we just look at your, NHL experience, you're definitely someone who's taken on different roles, you know, kind of building in Florida, organization that knows how to win in New Jersey, San Jose, potentially one of the best cultures in in hockey for a long time, done a lot of winning, haven't quite got over the hump. And then a, a startup essentially in the desert that they didn't know how it was going to go, sticking a bunch of 19, 20 year old Canadian kids in in Las Vegas. Um, yeah. yeah. How have you kind of navigated all those different challenges? Cause what you can see talking of being in boxes is coaches that are like a rebuild coach or get over yeah. the hump coach, you know, Phil Jackson, those, the bulls and Lakers teams made the conference finals and the conference semifinals, the two years before he took both of those jobs. So like, yeah, they were both hump jobs, get them over the line. Yeah. But you, you can kind of have those labels that stick to you a little bit, but you've evaded them. Yeah. You know, I, I think, 
I, I think basketball is different than hockey. Uh, I, I, I think when you go into an NBA season, there, there's really, you know, probably four teams that can win the title that year. And, and when you go into a hockey season, uh, there's probably 10 or 12. And, and I think that's, that's the difference. And that's why it's so hard to win. Um, you know, and, and I think that's the danger with saying, okay, we need a hump coach at the NHL. So when I look at John Cooper, he won back-to-back Stanley Cups. You would consider him a hump coach now. But he was there eight years prior to that where he couldn't get them over the hump. And if that right. team doesn't have the patience to stick with them and trust he knows what he's doing and tweak the lineup and keep getting better, he never gets an opportunity to, to take that team over the hump and become a hump coach. So um, for me, um, it's trusting the process. Uh, you know, one thing with the NHL, I, I read an article, uh, the shortest tenure of, of all pro coaches. I think the average is, you know, around three years uh, and then we're moved on. And, and that's a, a shorter window than the NBA, NFL, any of those other teams. And I think that's one thing that I, I, I really disagree with. There's been a history of some mid-season changes in our league where the team's gone on to win. And I think everyone's kind of taken that and go, okay, that's the way we've got to do a new voice and we're going to get over the hump. But, you know, I think, I think there's a lot more situations where it's a Tampa John Cooper situation where you, you've got a good coach, stability, program, stick with it, tweak, tweak, tweak until you get over the hump. Yeah, there are more and more examples like that. And a lot of people have been contacting me. There's an Amazon documentary called Making Their Mark, which is about last season in the AFL. And the standout performer, the team that wins the, the championship, is, uh, is Damien Hardwick, who had been in his job for eight or nine years when the team started to win. And it's funny because a lot of people message say, how do we get that? Like what he's got, you know, he's got really stable core. You know, he doesn't say a lot of messages in the, in the locker room. He just talks about process. I'm like, I'll tell you how you get it. You, you get it after nine years of being in the job and yeah. list stability and executive stability and not flinching when the media are calling for his head and, and that's how you get yeah. it. Is, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, I agree. If, if we're making a call that this is the best coach for the job, you need to give them that time to actually implement it. Well, yeah, and, and the players have to grow with the coach. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, I came in mid-season in Las Vegas, uh, replaced Gerard Gallant essentially at Christmas. And uh, it, it's hard. it's hard to implement your identity and, and the things you want to do on the fly at any point without some time. And it's hard to do in a year or one or two training camps, you know, um, because you add layers, you start with your foundation and then you get into some more of the details, you know, and then uh, you want to tweak some things. And, and every time you add in, you know, you bring someone new and you have to start that process over again. And sure it's worked sometimes. I think, I think when it's worked, I think it's been more, a testament to how off the rails the old regime had got than a testament to what the new coaches had done. And, and 
you know, so uh, I'm a big believer that uh, that's one area that uh, pro sports can do a better job is a little more patience, a little more stability, but you know, the fans and social media, it's, it's the old gladiator. The, the people want blood. If you don't win, they want blood and, 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 and it's hard to give players blood. So someone, someone usually pays that price. It goes kind of unspoken about a little bit in how disruptive it is to consistently start again. Yeah. You know, even with staff. So you see the turnover in, you know, strength and conditioning staff or, you know, the broader performance analytics and implementing those new ideas. How do you think about that as you kind of build out, you know, your philosophy? One thing we don't think about is is putting the team around you and making sure that you've got a kind of a holistic approach to what you need to get done. Well, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, you know, everyone talks now about relationships. Uh, the player has to trust the messenger and the information that they're getting from the coaches and the support staff. And in order to, to develop that relationships take time, there, there's no one that can walk into a room and have a relationship with somebody in, in an hour. And, and you're right. And that that's where continuity and stability, I think are important. I think you hire good people in those areas and you give them the time to build those relationships because uh, it might take a season or two seasons before that player trusts the messenger and the information they're getting from that person. Uh, it just, it, that's just how it works. So again, this rush to results, um, you know, like I said, I, I think uh, big picture, I think is, is a mistake. I agree. And can point to a lot of examples uh, you know, of that too. So it's funny because you're starting to see these John Coopers pop up where it's, you know, it takes the time and the stability. And then similarly is, yeah, this the mass turnover and just how disruptive it is. And that's for everything, right? Like, again, we, little things that we're doing, the, the mental side of the game now, if the players don't trust the person that's in that role, that person probably needs a couple of years to, to build that trust. You know, players are maybe skeptical of, of doing the, the training on the mental side. So they're not just going to yeah. do it because someone tells them. Right. And so no. it, it needs that time too. And that's what I mean in that, how disruptive it is to just continuously churn through these people and think that the next person is going to get it better or right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, there, there are some special people that can walk in a room and, and, and develop those totally. relationships quicker. Um, I don't think they're immediate for anybody, but, but for sure. But, but that list of people that can do that or, you know, in, in any area, whether it's, it's the mental side of the game or strength and conditioning or medical, um, you know, it, it takes time. It takes time to, to develop trust. And, uh, and that's, that's the history of the world. Um, you know, so for us to choose to ignore that, I, I think doesn't make any sense. Is there anything you've pinched from the mental side of the game and implemented in your, you know, what, repertoire? I, you know what, it, uh, I mean, the, the recent Olympics with Simone Biles, uh, you know, really hit home for me. Um, 
we've got a, a player on our team, Robin Leonard, with a long history uh, and a big advocate of, of mental, of the mental side of the game and and, uh, and what elite athletes deal with uh, off the ice and in their own head spaces. Um, so I think it's just coming to the forefront. Robin really opened my eyes with his bravery to talk about it. Um, he's the first player I've had. I'm sure I've had players my entire coaching career who have dealt with these issues. He's the first player that, that openly engages in it and, and has taken and tried to take the stigma away from it. And I think every time you see somebody publicly deal with it, Kevin Love and the NBA, Simone Biles now at the Olympics, I think that's moving us more towards a good place for elite athletes where, where, the, you know, there, there's not one that doesn't deal with this. It's just different uh, levels uh, of it. And, 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 uh, and unfortunately, some of it is, is absolutely debilitating. And we have to recognize that and give them the tools to, to help with it. So um, it, it's an area for me that, uh, that has really opened my eyes just recently in the last few years since coaching Robin Leonard. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited about, uh, the progress we're going to make in that area. Cause I think it's going to be the single biggest area of progress in pro sports over the next decade. Absolutely. And it was one of the reasons for me to really push ahead and, and want to write this book that I wrote earlier in the year around the emotional toll of what we do, because that has to factor in at a certain point in that we help have to help guide these young men and women through these circumstances. And I'm 38 and still come from a generation where, or a generation in Australia where you, you weren't taught to recognize your emotions or what was going on in your, with your mental health, let alone talk about it, let alone be able to ask for help with it. And so. Tough it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tough yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's still part of it. You know, when you, when you fall over, you yeah. get up and you dust your hands off, but, but it can be a lot more surgical than that. And, and even just finding words Absolutely. for what you're going through, I think is a huge move in the right direction. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've seen this too, that the impact that it can have in the locker room when people like Robin get up and speak about it and it, it relaxes everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's amazing. To, yeah. It's a, the amazing part to me uh, is when you talk to Robin about it is, is the, the act of courage of him uh, putting himself out there. This is me. This is what I deal with. Uh, he said uh, it's been amazing how many uh, peers in the NHL, other players have reached out to him saying, Hey, not, not only do I support you, I deal with the same thing. I just, you know, haven't come out and talked about it. And uh, so that, that shows you, uh, you know, how, how many, how many other people are dealing with it just haven't had the forum or the courage or, or felt comfortable enough to do it. Uh, pro sports creates great insecurities, um, it, huge paychecks, huge fame, but you're fighting for your life and your livelihood and your job and your reputation every single day you, you show up at the, at the field or the rink. 
and 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 that develops great insecurities. That that's the biggest thing that I learned coaching at the pro level is is how insecure a lot of the athletes are. They 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 look the part, they act the part. They're big, they're strong, they're athletic, they're rich, they drive great cars, but the insecurities run deep and, and pro sports feeds, feeds that. Big time. If you were to look at the head coach of the future, so the people listening in, in you know, Europe, in North America, in Australia, New Zealand, whatever endeavor they're getting into, if you were to look at that coach of the future, like what advice would you give someone that looks up to you and is kind of heading in that direction, wanting to make a, a real go at this? Well, I think don't box yourself in. I, I really think coach has to be, you know, it, it's a cliche, but a Renaissance man, you know, you, you have to be everything to everybody. And uh, um, I think if you take that attitude, I, I think, there's a couple things. I think the one underlying principle for almost every elite athlete I know is they want to be pushed. They want to be challenged. They, they want, uh, so don't ever forget that, you know, there's been a little bit of a slide to relationship building where you become their friend or their teammate. They, 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 they want people to push them outside their comfort zone. The great players do. Um, and, and you have to remember that's always got to be part of your DNA as a coach. Now, how you do that is, is the new age coaching. And, and there's, there's a lot of different ways to get there. It used to be just jump and how high and, you know, why don't ask. Um, and, and now, you know, obviously it's much more complex than that, but we, we can't forget that underlying principle in coaching is that that's our job is, is to, is to get people to go beyond where they feel they can go. And, um, and that's, that's not easy to do. Sometimes there's tough conversations in that. Um, but the better the relationships, the more trust that's built, uh, the easier those conversations are to have. It's really carrot and stick isn't it and it's yeah. funny because it's it's always applied to john wooden and he's seen as this quite futuristic coach but then you speak to any anyone that played for him and is like yeah it was ruthless yeah <laughs> we would yeah. run and run and run and he would run us into the ground but he knew when to you know when to apply carrot and when to apply stick and yeah. and that hasn't really changed yeah. even with new athletes yeah. no absolutely not all right pete this is a big question mate <laughs> and i've primed you for this yeah. everyone's looking for a netflix recommendation or a book <laughs> or or a wikipedia hole to go down if, if you want to uh, what what's what have you found recently where like i can't believe that i'm into this but uh, this is actually really interesting <laughs> to me uh i would i would embarrass myself because uh you know my, my wife has me watching every every netflix uh, couple show going you know i'm on the coach of <laughs> virgin river and and these type I, I i gotta tell you i've watched i've watched every behind the scenes uh, uh soccer documentary coming out of Indra, england sunderland uh, mm -hmm. manchester city the the inner workings of of the teams uh you know the the organization from ownership to gm to the players to the trainers, to, uh, you know, what they're dealing with off the ice. 
just fascinating to me and uh, you know, how some of those organizations have excelled and how, how some of them have absolutely flopped and some of the lessons that come out, you know, I, I could watch those all day. So I'm sure, you know, I'm not giving you uh, anything anyone hasn't, hasn't seen on this podcast, although in North America, uh, you know, in the hockey culture here, and hopefully there's some hockey coaches tuning in, they might, they might bypass those, you know, I would suggest they watch them because uh, they really do parallel what, what we do for a living. Uh, you know, there, there's so many similarities in, in every sport around the world uh, and what we do. And there's so much you can take uh, from those. So uh, it's boring, but uh, that would be my, my, uh, my documentary uh, recommendations. They are captivating, aren't they? Especially the relegation yeah. piece, like for, yeah. for, you know, protected leagues like the AFL, the NHL, the NFL, where you don't have to deal with that. I find that the most fascinating. So you see the, the boardroom panic as they see the, the dollars <laughs> potentially disappearing and the, and the locker room panic. Yeah. And well, it, and the trade deadline, a, you know, in the trade yep. deadline, the windows that open up and how are we going to improve this team and some of the, the mistakes made out of emotion or, 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 you know, fan pressure, we need to get a striker, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and then you sign a guy for 10 years and hundreds of millions of pounds and, you know, it's an absolute yeah. flop. So it's just, a, it's a fascinating human nature uh, experiment. Mate, I really appreciate you coming on uh, and talking coaching with us, but, but more so passing on your lessons from coaching i think it's something that i'm trying to emphasize that we do more and, and share our lessons amongst ourselves around the world now that we can and learn from each other so i really appreciate uh, you jumping on and doing this yeah great great concept and uh big fan and and keep going awesome stuff Brilliant, mate. thank you thank you hey thanks for listening all the way to the end if you want to get in touch learn anything about my books, this podcast, subscribe to my blog, head to codyroyal.com. See you next time.